0: If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We're going to briefly look at chapter 1, verse 67 through 75 to get started. Luke chapter 1, verse 67 through 75. This is... The prayer that Zechariah prays, and it is a prophecy, in fact, that he prophesies at the birth of his son John the Baptist. Our subject matter this afternoon is Christian liberty. We're going to be in the confession, we're going to be in chapter 21 of the confession on Christian liberty. You'll notice that I'm not Brent. Brit needed a week off, so we're going to take a look at the confession, but we're going to start here this afternoon. It'll be helpful for us, and so just I'll read out loud, and you can follow along. Luke chapter 1, verse 67 through 75, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we ask now for your blessing upon our time together. We ask, Lord, that you would give us wisdom and insight in your word and the teaching of our confession. We pray, Lord, that it would be instructive to us and edifying and encouraging to us. We pray, Lord, that you would be glorified and exalted as your truth is taught, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our again, what we're looking at this afternoon is our Confession of Faith, chapter 21 on Christian liberty, or of Christian liberty and the liberty of conscience. The main idea of, this, uh, of our chapter on Christian liberty and the idea of Christian liberty in general is what we just read from Luke chapter 1, verse 74 to 75, or it's well summed up there. Because God has saved us and redeemed us, he's liberated us from our enemies. The reason that he does so, verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And really there you have all the core components of what Christian liberty is all about. Christian liberty is the release from the dominion of sin so that we serve the Lord. He has liberated us and freed us. He's given us a new nature. He has uh, renewed our relationship with Him through justification so that we might serve Him. He's liberated us from fear so that we might serve Him without fear. He's liberated us again from sin so that we might serve Him in holiness and righteousness. He's granted us access to Him so that we serve Him before the face of God, before Him. And he's liberated us from the grave and condemnation and death and hell and all of those things so that we might worship him all our days. Now, remember, in the Bible, we have immortal souls. So when he says all our days, he means forever and ever in eternal life. And so really, there just in those two verses, you get everything that you need about Christian liberty. And so it's a good place to begin. It gives us a nice little overview and summary right out of the scriptures. We can state the idea of Christian liberty a different way. Christ has set us free from all of our masters, so that we might serve him alone. <laughs> the idea of Christian liberty is that Jesus Christ has set us free from our enemies. He set us free from our former masters, so that we might serve him and him alone. Jesus is the one true and supreme master. He is Lord, and he has set us free from all of those other masters and the chains that once binded us so that we might serve him and serve him alone. This is important. It's helpful for us to think about because we tend sometimes to think about Christian liberty as the freedom to do whatever we want. (laughs) Or we think about Christian liberty as Jesus Christ even setting us free so that we don't have to worry so much about sin. And this is a serious problem because there are many Reformed Baptists who live their life this way. This is what they understand Christian liberty to mean. They think of Christian liberty as dealing with things like can they drink alcohol or not, can they smoke cigars or not, and can they enjoy movies or not, and so on. But Christian liberty fundamentally is the idea that we have been set free to serve Jesus Christ. The whole concept of the liberty of, that we have in Christ is that we have been set free to obey Him, to serve Him. It is true that Jesus Christ is not a tyrant in his lordship. And in his kingdom, he has given us many good things to enjoy. We think of these things as what we sometimes call, under the heading of Christian liberty, things indifferent. We think of whether we should eat meat or vegetables. We see that example in the Bible. We see some other examples that I just mentioned very briefly. Yes, Jesus gives us many good things to enjoy. He's not a tyrant. He has given us His commandments. He has given us laws as boundaries that are set on the freedoms that we have. And as long as we're not violating those boundaries, we have freedom. We have liberty. And we thank the Lord for this liberty and freedom that we have. Jesus Christ, in many ways, is imitating His Heavenly Father. You remember that God in the Garden of Eden, when He was dealing with Adam and Eve, the liberty that He gave them, He said, you can eat of all the trees of the Garden But of this one tree you shall not eat, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Jesus is very much the image of his Father. And Jesus sets down for us commandments and laws and so on that mark boundaries for us. But within those boundaries, he's given us every good thing to enjoy. And we appreciate that and we're thankful for that. But we enjoy these things indifferent and these free gifts that he gives us under his headship, as servants of Christ. And see, that's the main idea of Christian liberty, is that he's liberated us to serve him. He's given us new hearts. He's set us free from our spiritual death and our unregenerate state. He's given us a desire to serve him and his Father. He's given us a love for him. He's given us a delight in him and in his lordship. So that we enjoy those things indifferent, and those gifts that he gives us, and those liberties that we enjoy, precisely because they are from his hand, because they are from him, because we have his permission and his leave to enjoy those things. So again, the idea of Christian liberty is that we have been set free to serve Christ. We have been liberated from spiritual death, and we have been liberated from fear and those things that hindered us. And our service to God. Zechariah mentions our enemies. We've been uh, liberated in so many ways so that we might be dedicated to one master, not many, and to the true master, not false masters, and to the holy master, not unholy and unclean masters. We have been liberated to serve Jesus Christ. We're like the child who has finally learned that it is not better to ask forgiveness than it is to ask for permission. <laughs> and I understand that that proverb The illustration breaks down a little bit. I understand that that proverb has some practical wisdom in a complicated and fallen world. But we really are like the child who has learned that it is not better to ask forgiveness than It's better to ask for permission because that child gains so much confidence when he knows what his parents have desired of him. Why? Because that child has learned to love his parents and he wants to obey his parents and he doesn't want to violate the boundaries of his parents. That child is no longer trying to see what he can get away with in life. He, is, he wants to know what mom and dad say. He has learned to love and trust mom and dad. Now, and you say, well, what child is really like that? But you get the illustration, you know. So, but this is what Christ has done for us. We want to please him. We want to be within the boundaries that he set. We don't want to go outside of them. And we love the confidence that we receive when we know that we have freedom and we have liberty and we know where the boundaries are drawn and we know what pleases him. And it gives us boldness when the troubled children in the neighborhood try to uh, tempt us away from doing what's right. And we can say no because we know where the boundaries are. And we've learned to love our Savior. So I'm maybe belaboring that illustration. But again, I just want to reiterate, Christian liberty is the liberty to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) And I'm just pounding it really hard because many Reformed Baptists do not comprehend this idea. They don't understand it, and they fail to put it into practice. Christian liberty is the liberty to obey Jesus Christ, to serve him, to love him, to obey him. So Christian liberty therefore liberates us from moralism. We are not simply looking as Christians to do the right thing. We're seeking to serve our one true master, Jesus Christ. Christian liberate, liberty liberates us on the same idea from legalism. We're not seeking simply to observe the letter of the law, we're seeking to obey the spirit of our Lord. <laughs> It liberates us from self-righteousness because we're not seeking to do what we think is best for ourselves. We're seeking to serve our one true master. Same thing with self-serving. It even liberates us from antinomianism or lawlessness and licentiousness. It delivers us from sin and the foolishness of sin. It frees us to live as true children of God, as holy saints in faith, hope, and love, in service to Jesus Christ. And the Bible witnesses, and I witness to you, brothers, that this service to Christ, this Christian liberty, is the definition of true happiness in this life and in the life to come. It is the source of true happiness and joy and delight. And there is no real happiness or delight outside the boundaries of Christian liberty. So I want to elaborate on this a little bit in commenting on the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is considerably different than our confession, but it's still there's enough similarity that these quotes that I'm going about to quote to you are helpful for thinking about. A. A. Hodge says this about Christian liberty, and I'm paraphrasing, but I'm going to treat this uh, like a quotation. Here's what A. A. Hodge says, saying similar things and, and helping us to penetrate the idea of Christian liberty and to grow and expand our understanding of it. He says Christian liberty refers and consists of two things. First, the liberation of the will to desire conformity to God's law. And this, what a great liberty this is, and every one of us who's in Christ knows this liberty. We desire to obey. We desire to be conformed to His law. What a gracious gift it is from God to want to be holy to want, to desire, because we remember that before we came to Christ, the Bible teaches us outside of Christ, there is no desire for holiness. We loved sin. We loved sin for its own sake. We were rebellious, but something changed when we came to Christ, when God did a sovereign work in our life, and he gave us a new heart. He gave us eyes to see, and we loved Christ, and we wanted to obey him, and so he says this is the first part of Christian liberty, the liberation of the will to desire conformity to God's law, to the the desire to serve Jesus Christ. Second, he says, Christian liberty consists in the new relationships formed because of what Christ has done uh, to purchase Christian liberty. And he lists three new relationships that we have. A new relationship with God so that the believer is delivered from the constraining motives of fear and brought under the ennobling influences of love and hope. Before we came to Christ, or when we are weak in Christ and we are doubtful, we're not thinking carefully about our Christian liberty, we can be motivated to obedience out of fear, but that's no longer the case if we're understanding Christian liberty properly and putting it into practice. We are not motivated by fear. We are motivated by love and trust and hope in God. So our relationship to Him and Christ has changed In that regard, our relationship with Satan and evil men, A. A. Hodge mentions this, has changed so that the believer is delivered from their coercive power. The Bible tells us that those who are outside of Christ are carried away with the ways of this world, and the prince of the power of the air, they follow him, and they are slaves to him, they are slaves to sin. But our relationship has changed to the world and to Satan and to evil men. So that we can tell them, no, I'm not going to go your way. I'm going to obey the Lord God of heaven and earth. I'm going to obey my Savior. Number three, our relationship with providential circumstances. So that the believer is free to take to himself God's promises and aid when facing them. We're liberated in providential circumstances to enjoy the promises of God and to take them to ourselves. So Hodge concludes, and he says, Christian liberty involves two things. Regeneration, that's a new nature. Liberation from spiritual death, and the bondage of the will. And secondly, justification. The new relationship that we have to God through Jesus Christ that transforms our relationships to everything else. So that we are in relationship to God without fear, and we have been set loose from our former masters, and we enjoy the free grace of God. Christian liberty. Well, finally, he illustrates, and I think this is helpful, the Trinitarian character of Christian liberty. So turn to me at a few, or turn with me to a few places in your Bibles. First of all, he mentions that Christian liberty is the main benefit of adoption. Look with me at Romans chapter 8. He's touching on this key component of our relationship to the Father, which Paul calls, or our terms or labels as, the glorious liberty of the children of God. Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verse 14 and 15. Christian liberty is the key component of our adoption, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father." And so what Paul is doing here in this particular passage is he's, really, he's making an illustration here. He's doing a compare and contrast between the household slave and the household son. We, he has a, he's thinking of God as the father or the head of an estate. And in the estates in Paul's days, they had slaves in the household or in the estate, and then they had their own children, their own sons. And he's comparing and contrasting the difference between the relationship that a slave or an employee has to his master, versus the relationship that a son or a daughter has to his or her father. And he's reminding us here that because of the liberty that Christ has granted to us, our relationship to the Father has fundamentally changed. We were once slaves, we were once employees in the household, and we came under God's strict watch and we had disobeyed him, and we have been liberated, though, from that spirit. We, do no, we no longer have the spirit of slaves to fall back into fear. That's not the nature of our relationship with God. It's not a relationship based on master and slave. It's a relationship of father and son. It's therefore no longer a relationship of fear, but it's a relationship of longing and desire and love. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba Father. Abba Father means dear Father, loved Father, beloved. And we are moved to obedience. Not out of fear or necessity, but out of freedom and out of love. So this is what A. a. Hodge is bringing out, this idea of Christian liberty, this love that we have for God towards him as a father. He brings out the, uh, that our relationship to the Son. Our freedom is purchased by the Son, Turn with me to Galatians chapter five verse one. In fact, this is the point that the confession itself begins with: this idea that our our liberty has been purchased with a price, and the one who has laid down that purchase price is the Son. And although Galatians chapter five verse one doesn't mention it explicitly, when it's compared with other scriptures. That purchase price is Christ's own blood. But look at how Paul puts this in Galatians 5, verse 1 For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And again, what the apostle is reminding us there is that Jesus Christ himself is the one who has set us free. And he has set us free by paying the price of our redemption, of our freedom. And it is for the sake of setting us free that Christ has paid that price, and therefore we have the obligation to understand this liberty and to continue in it. And then finally, A. A. Hodge brings out a relationship to the Holy Spirit. And he uh, cites Second uh, Corinthians 3:17 to 18. So turn with me really quickly to Second Corinthians chapter three. Verse 17 to 18, one of the one of these wonderful passages <laughs> in the scriptures. He makes the point that our Christian liberty is applied and worked out by the Holy Spirit. We enjoy the freedom that we have in Christ, in and through the Holy Spirit of Christ. We realize this freedom practically by the help of the Holy Spirit. But look at how Paul puts this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Now I'm just going to pause there. I want to explain this to you. What Paul is saying here, when he uses the term Lord, he's referring to Jesus Christ. And so Paul here is asserting the fundamental unity of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. It's much like what Jesus does in the Gospels when he asserts his unity with the Father. He says, I and my Father are one. Paul is saying here, Jesus and his Spirit are one. The Lord is the Spirit. The Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. He's the Spirit of the Lord. He's the Spirit of our King. He's the Spirit of the one who has paid the purchase price of our redemption. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, Paul here is referring to regeneration, the enabling of the Spirit to be able to see Christ for who He is, to see Him in the glory of His majesty, and the glory of Christ's majesty really indeed is the glory of His holiness. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, beholding the glory of Christ, are being transformed. Now, it's really interesting because the word that Paul uses there is the word for transfiguration. (laughs) So it's a a fine translation to say transformed, but he's using the term that's used in the gospel to refer to Christ's transfiguration, the manifestation of of His majesty and His glory. We are being transformed or transfigured. Into the same image, the image of the glory of the majesty of our Savior, the image of His holiness, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so it's the Holy Spirit who is working in us this liberty to be servants of Christ and to obey Him out of a heart of love. And it's encouraging for us to look at this passage because it's a reminder to us that God doesn't do it all at once. He does it one degree by another. We call it progressive sanctification. The whole Christian life is us learning and growing to serve Christ and to serve Him more faithfully. We're growing in righteousness. We're growing in holiness. And so the sum of what we've said so far, and this has really all been just introduction, is that Christian liberty is the freedom to serve Jesus Christ as the one true master, and indeed as our one true master. So here's the outline. We're going to look at the confession. We'll spend some time in the paragraphs that make up the confession. I'm borrowing somewhat from Dr. Renahan's commentary on this. I'm borrowing his outline. I'm sure that's no surprise to you. We have three paragraphs in the confession on Christian liberty. Paragraph one defines Christian liberty. Paragraph two sets the boundaries of Christian liberty, and paragraph three issues a strong warning against the perversion of Christian liberty, because that's our tendency. So we want to look at paragraph one, the definition of Christian liberty. If you have a copy of the confession, uh, you can get it out now, Uh, and you can go online if you don't have a copy, if you have a paperback copy with you. You can go online, you can find copies, you can find it at the back of the hymn book. Thank you for reminding me of that, I'd totally forgotten. You can find a copy of the Confession at the back of the hymn book. It's after after the hymns before the index. Page 681. Page 681, thank you very much. Paragraph one. The definition of Christian liberty... I'm going to read the paragraph, then we're going to just break it open a little bit. <clears throat> the liberty which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel. And if you see a difference between, I didn't, here's, the th- here's, here's something interesting, it's a complete aside. <laughs> when I go look at copies of the confession, I, every copy that I see is slightly different from, the, from one of the other ones. I don't know why that is, maybe you know why that is. They're all slightly different. So, for instance, in this case, I pulled from a copy, and it says not the rigor and curse of the law, but the severity and curse of the law. And so there's just these little, little changes that you'll find some places. So as I read it, if it doesn't read exactly like the hymn book, I'm not reading out of the hymn book. That's the point I'm making. But I decided to insert what I had observed. So, follow along. I'm gonna, it'll be pretty close. The liberty which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the rigor and curse of the law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan, and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the fear and sting of death, the victory of the grave and everlasting damnation, as also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto Him, Not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind. All which were common also to believers under the law for the substance of them. But under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of a ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected and in greater boldness of access to the throne of grace and in fuller communications of the free spirit of God than believers under the law ordinarily partake of now brothers that is an amazing list <laughs> I mean it's almost devotional it's great it's wonderful let's think about what the confession has said the first thing to notice very importantly is that the confession has brought out to us again that Jesus Christ has purchased this liberty for us under the gospel this is a blessing that we enjoy by the purchase of Christ's blood. It rests upon his blood work. It rests upon his substitutionary atoning work upon the cross. This means that Christian liberty is rooted in what we sometimes think of as the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's difficult to fully understand or appreciate Christian liberty unless you understand the the doctrine of of justification by faith alone for just a moment then let me remind you of the doctrine of justification by faith alone it's a rich and sweet doctrine it's the heart and core of the gospel message that we preach <laughs> the, the the gospel preaches the doctrine of justification preaches that we are sinners in Adam and we are coming to this world and we deserve punishment for our sins we deserve God's condemning wrath we deserve hell we deserve condemnation because we have violated God's law and we have offended His holy person. We deserve everlasting torment and pain in hell. That's what sin really truly deserves. And that's who we are apart from Christ. We are under God's wrath. We have broken His law. We have offended His person. And we are under His wrath. He is determined to execute His justice, the justice of His law against us, and to pour out His avenging wrath upon us for uh, violating his majesty and his holiness. And that's who we are apart from Christ. So what God does in his mercy to his people who are condemned is he sends his son into the world to do what we could not do in keeping the law. He sends his son into this world to fulfill the standards of his law and to bring glory and honor and majesty to his name. He sends the Lord Jesus Christ, he grants him a body. This is what we heard about this morning, isn't it? This is what we read in Hebrews. He grants him a body, he grants him our own nature, though without sin. So he shares our weaknesses, and he shares our frailties, and he's under the same law and obligation that we are as a human being. He sends his Son into the world in human flesh to fulfill the requirements of the law, so that Jesus is obedient to the Father where we are not. So that Jesus Christ keeps the standard of God's law and righteousness where we have failed. But this isn't the whole story, of course, because we have still sinned against God and we deserve hell and condemnation. So Jesus does something else. He doesn't just come to fill up the righteous requirements of God's law. He comes to pay the penalties that are due his people for anyone who will believe in him, for anyone who will trust in him. And so he is obedient to the point of death on a cross. And he goes to the cross and he takes upon himself upon the cross the wrath of God and the condemnation and the just punishment for our sins upon himself upon the cross. He sheds his blood. The wages of sin is death. He dies. He bears in his body and soul the wrath of God. He bears what we could not bear ourselves. So he becomes, for those who will trust in him, righteousness and an atoning sacrifice. He fills up the standard of God's law and its righteous standard. He fills up the requirements of God's law against sinners and the penalties that are due to them. Now all of those who trust in him, who come to Christ, receive the full payment of their sins. So that someone who trusts in Christ, Christ has already paid for their, for their, for their penalty. For, he's already paid for their sins. He's already borne the wrath of God. So anyone who trusts in Christ, it's now unjust for God to bring his wrath upon them. It's unjust for God to punish them judicially for their sins in hell. It's wrong for God to do that, and God isn't willing to do it because Christ has already paid that penalty. God's wrath has been propitiated, and the guilt of man's sin has been expiated. (laughs) It's been moved as far as the east is from the west, and God has removed his wrath. His wrath is satisfied. He makes no more demands of the one who trusts in Jesus Christ except that he trusts in Christ. He's united to Christ, and so the penalty of sin has been paid for. Not only that, but God now counts that person who trusts in Christ to be clothed with Christ's righteousness. God counts that person to be having fulfilled the laws Christ has in Christ. Now, the the real practical application of that is that Christ's righteousness earns and merits the kingdom of God. It earns and merits everlasting life. So that the person who has faith in Christ becomes a co-heir with Christ of the kingdom. He becomes a co-inheritor. He becomes an adopted son. That's the best language that the Bible has to describe to us, the nature of this new relationship that this person who trusted Christ has in Christ. We become like Christ in that sense. We have his righteousness upon us. We have free access to God. He accepts us. He's pleased with us. He sees us in Christ, righteous and pure and holy. He sees us as having rightly earned and merited access to his presence, the kingdom of God, and everlasting life. So <laughs> This is the basis of Christian liberty. It's the blood work of Jesus Christ that purchases for us that redemption, uh, his righteousness, and the payment of the penalty of sin. And then, of course, God accepts Christ's sacrifice. It's important that we remember that. that. It's not simply that Christ died and we have all of those benefits, but it's that God accepted Christ's sacrifice and he proves it by raising him from the dead and giving Christ glory. So that it's because Christ is raised that we are justified. (laughs) It's by his death that we are forgiven. It is by his resurrection that we are justified. This is what Paul says at the end of chapter 4 in the book of Romans. So this liberty that we have in Christ has been purchased for us by his blood. This whole idea of justification is the root and the foundation for us to now understand why we enjoy all of these liberties, and that helps really define for us what those liberties are. So secondly, the confession teaches us what this Christian liberty consists of, or that is, what are the liberties that Christ has purchased us by his justifying death and resurrection? Well, we have a whole list here, don't we? And there's some debate and disagreement in all my studies on how people break it up. So I'm going to break it up a certain way and I think it'll be enough for this afternoon. It delivers us, notice there that it says the first thing, it delivers us from guilt, condemning wrath, and the rigor and curse of the law. And most of these are self-explanatory at this point if we understand the basis of Christian liberty. Our guilt, guilt means the liability to punishment. Christ has already borne the punishment. The guilt is gone. God expiates it. (laughs) which is to say He removes it far away. There is no more guilt. So Christ has liberated us from the bondage and the burden and the weight and those heavy chains that we carried so long of guilt. They're gone in Christ. We are free. Christ has removed the condemning wrath of God, as we've already said. It's already been satiated upon the cross, and so it's no longer towards us. So the wrath of God is removed from us. Now, this doesn't mean that God doesn't have fatherly displeasure, but the condemning wrath of God is gone. He no longer has or plays the role of a judge in that sense in our life. The rigor and curse of the law has been removed or liberated from it. And again, I've seen some different ideas about what rigor means. Rigor does not mean that God lowers His standards or compromises His standard of righteousness It means that he is willing to diminish the the severity of the punishments of sin as a father to his children. So it's often explained as leniency. In other words, God looks upon our works, and before we were in Christ, all he saw was the failures and the sin and the condemnation that it deserved. In Christ, all he sees is our desire to obey Christ, even when we do it imperfectly. And he chooses to look on the one and not the other in Christ, because of Christ. And so both the rigor and the curse of the law are removed in that sense. It's not a removal of the strictness of the standard, but the strictness of the enforcement might be one way of thinking about that. But here's this glorious liberty. We've been liberated from guilt, condemning wrath, rigor and curse of the law... It liberates us from sin as a ruling principle of our nature. That's what really the confession means in the next place when it says that we've been delivered from the present evil world, bondage to Satan, and the dominion of sin. Sin no longer reigns in our life. We are no longer slaves of the way of this world. We are no longer slaves of the deceptions of the devil, and we are no longer slaves to the passions of our flesh. The power of sin is broken. (laughs) In other words... Christ has liberated us by enabling us to obey. He's enabled us to say no to these former masters. We can walk away contrary to the way of the world. We, can, we are set free from the deceptions of Satan and from following him. And we can say no to our own passions and lust. This is something that Christ has purchased for us and that we enjoy. It delivers us from the evil of inflictions, even death. So again, do notice that Paul doesn't say... Our, that the confession doesn't say it, it, it delivers us from afflictions, it delivers us from their evil. The point is that in Jesus Christ, we have rich promises. God has promised in Christ to those who are in Christ that all of our sufferings and all of our afflictions, he uses for our well-being and for our good. So that Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that we rejoice in our sufferings. Peter says that the testing of our faith results in glory. <laughs> Paul says again, all things work for good to those who love Christ. All of the evil of our afflictions is gone. So we're still afflicted, and we still suffer, but it's for our well-being. Same thing with death. It's not, that we, can, it's not that, we, that we cease to die. People die in Christ. But death has been made a slave of Christ and a servant of His people. It becomes the gateway to eternity. It becomes our entrance into the presence of Christ. So we are free from the evil and the sting of afflictions and death. Christ has set us free. It sets us free from the victory of the grave and eternal damnation. That's the next thing that you'll notice there. In other words, it removes the penal consequences of sin, which means that we have inherited and it gives us freedom into eternal life. Eternal life is the reward that we enjoy because we have Christ's righteousness. Finally, or not finally, but f- next, it, fifth, it frees us from hostility with God. And it does so on both sides of the relationship. And this is really what the confession means when it says in their free access to God. We have free access to God through Jesus Christ because God is no longer at, uh, an enemy. He's no longer at war with us. He's no longer angry with us in Christ. So we have free access. That is to say, he accepts us. And he's pleased with us in Christ. But the confession goes on to say, and they're yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and a willing mind. In other words, the hostility that was once in our heart towards God, our dislike of him, our terror and fear of him has been erased. Our unwillingness to obey him has been erased. We have free access to God. The hostility on his part is gone. And we have a desire to obey him out of love and a willing mind. The hostility on our part has been removed. All by the powerful work of Christ. We love to obey God's law. Finally, we are untethered from the hindrances of the Old Testament ceremonial laws. That's what that whole last section of paragraph 1 is really dealing with. Hodge calls it the coercive measures of enforced obedience. (laughs) That's what he... uh, The idea is, of course, that the law was placed upon us, and we didn't want to keep it, but God made us keep it. That's no longer the case. But we don't have those ceremonies either. We have free access to God. So we don't go through the priesthood. We don't go into the Holy of Holies. We don't have all of those inconveniences. We go directly to the throne of grace in our prayers by faith. We have direct access through Jesus Christ. And so there's more to say there, but that's all I'll say for paragraph one. We have all of these wonderful and glorious liberties in Christ. This is what our freedom in Christ consists of. And it causes us to worship and praise and give thanks to Jesus for all that he has done for us. Well, paragraph two takes up the boundaries of Christian liberty. And without going into the details, the big idea of this paragraph is that only God in his word can set the boundaries on Christian liberty. In matters of faith and worship, God's word is king and law in our life. In fact, all areas of our life. Only God has the right to rule over our conscience. Our conscience is that part of us that makes judgments about what's right and wrong. The conscience ascertains duty and judges our actions when duty is done according to that standard. Only the Lord has the right to tell us what to think about right and wrong. He is the Lord of the conscience. He's the one who sets the boundaries. It's His commandments. It's His laws that we are seeking to serve. And within the boundaries of those laws, we have liberty and we have freedom. There's a lot more that we could say there, but the way the confession puts it, you can see there is this. Paragraph 2, God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word and not contained in it. It goes on to say, "...so that to believe such doctrines or obey such commandments out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience." In other words, we must serve the subordinate authorities that are in our life for Christ's sake, always testing them and always judging them against the commandments and the word of Christ. It goes on finally to say, "...and the requiring of an implicit faith, an absolute and blind obedience, is to destroy liberty of conscience." And reason also. The confession here is forbidding those who have authority, parents, preachers, governments, etc., from demanding absolute blind obedience. Because no man should obey an earthly authority for the earthly authority's sake, but for the sake of Jesus Christ who tells us to obey that authority. That's the fine distinction that the confession is making. We serve Christ. And if we serve any other authority, it's out of service to Christ. And again, we're liberated to love Him and serve Him in all areas of our life that way. Paragraph 3 then issues a strong warning against perverting Christian liberty. The Confession wants to make the point that it is possible to use Christian liberty as an excuse for sin. We can say to ourselves, oh, I'm free of guilt. I'm free of God's condemning wrath. I'm free from the dominion of sin. Well, I'll just go flirt with every sin and temptation that I want to. (laughs) And that's a wrong use of Christian liberty. The confession reminds us and warns us that it is possible for God's children to come under severe chastisements for abusing Christian liberty. So let's look at the paragraph. Paragraph 3. Listen to its language here. It's very helpful. It's wonderful. It's good. They who upon pretense of Christian liberty do practice any sin or cherish any sinful lust, as they do thereby pervert the main design of the grace of the gospel to their own destruction... There's the warning. So they wholly destroy the end of Christian liberty, which is that being delivered out of the hands of all of our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear, in holiness and righteousness, before Him all the days of our lives. It is possible for us to provoke God's fatherly wrath in the new covenant. And the confession is very clear. Those who use Christian liberty, who abuse it as an excuse for sin, may bring upon themselves destruction, and that's a warning to us to understand this doctrine and to seek to put it in practice and to properly understand it. Using Christian liberty as an excuse for sin, as we I hope I've made clear to you today, completely destroys the purpose of Christian liberty. The point of Christian liberty is that we've been set free from sin. And we've been set free to serve the Lord Jesus and to please him. The confession explicitly says that it destroys the purpose of the grace of the gospel and it destroys the end or the result that Christian liberty seeks. Again, listen to the language. They who upon pretense of Christian liberty do practice any sin or cherish any sinful lust, as they do thereby pervert the main design of the grace of the gospel to their own destruction, so they wholly destroy the end of Christian liberty. That's the result that it's seeking, which is that being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. The design of the grace of the gospel is that the grace of God is meant to deliver us from sin. If God's grace just simply means that he accepts sinners in their sins, then grace is just an acceptance of sin. And if God just accepts sin, why did Christ die? This is sort of the logic that 's going on behind what the confession is teaching here, and if christ and it, well, not if Christ died, but if we 're still in our sins, are we really free? Now he's not, it's, the confession is not preaching perfection here, but he is talking about this idea of bringing ourselves back into bondage to sin and abuse of Christian liberty. It destroys the design of the grace of the gospel. The grace of the gospel was designed to liberate us from sin. <laughs> To love God, to live in trust and obedience to Him out of a willing heart. The result that Christian liberty is seeking is to free us to love God as true children and Jesus Christ with a willing heart. So Christian liberty is not absolute freedom to do whatever we want. It is the freedom to obey God from a heart, a sincere heart of love and faith, it is the freedom to truly follow Jesus Christ. It is freedom from the bondage of sin and self into the glorious liberty of trust and love for God through Jesus Christ. Now again, none of us does this perfectly. So I want to end back in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 to 18, just as an encouragement to you. Because that final warning might be really heavy. I think it might be heavy for some people. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 through 18 reminds us that we don't do this perfectly. We're growing. In fact, this is part of the liberty that we enjoy in Christ. <clears throat> so just again, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, the image of His glorious holiness, from one degree of glory to another, uh, For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's the Lord who will sanctify you. He is faithful, he will do it. So put your trust in the Lord and the Lord Jesus.